step up and give a listen to the singer. Hey again, everybody. This is Greg Bryant, host of Jazz After Hours on member-supported WBGO. And I'm Nate Chenin, editorial director at WBGO. Jazz United is our podcast from WBGO Studios. It's a show about, honestly, whatever we want it to be about. Uh, what's happening in the music, what's happening on the scene, and honestly, whatever Greg and I feel like discussing. So welcome. This week, we've got a good one. That's right. The uh, conglomerate, the uh, dynamic duo of Kurt Elling and Charlie Hunter have a new release that uh, folks are talking about and hearing live and on record. The record is called Super Blue, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, a joining of the minds in uh, a funky fashion. I'll say it that way. <laughs> so Super Blue is the name of the album. It's also, I think, the name of the band. And uh, and Greg, you saw this band at the Brick Jazz Fest. And so before we we jump into talking about the album, I'm dying to hear what it was like to experience this project in performance. Very interesting in that there was one key addition who is not on the album, mm -hmm. but is a member of the touring ensemble, that being uh, drummer Nate Smith, uh, who we've mentioned on this podcast. Mm. He and Charlie Hunter, my God, yeah. groove for days. I mean, you or I could be in front of that uh, band, Nate, and, and sound good because like anything they did was right. Anything they did would motivate Kurt Elling. The people were on their feet. It was a full room, a sold out show. Um, they did the majority of this album. And I really feel like they're just finding that sweet spot on mm -hmm. the stage. Um, sometimes it takes a while to follow uh, quite an album like this. So we're going to talk about this record in detail, but I think they're really finding their footing uh, with this material in a live setting. It was, it yeah. was awesome to behold. Yeah. And after all this time, you know, we, we've been talking since we started this podcast, you know, about these extraordinary circumstances we're living through. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we are indeed in a phase of, of kind of reawakening and reopening, um, I can think of a few things better suited to that than a packed house at, you know, at Brick in downtown Brooklyn for the, you know, the live energy exchange that, that yeah. takes place when musicians like this are throwing down. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, that's, it's gotta be, it's gotta be a good moment. Um, but speaking of time um, mm -hmm. and moments in time, let, let's jump in the time machine right now. Sure and dial it back to 1995. Uh, because I know that you have uh, very clear memories of this, as I do. Um, Blue Note Records in 1995 releases an album by a, a guitarist that most people don't know uh, on the national scene. Um, and this is Charlie Hunter's album, Bing, Bing, Bing. Um, and the very same year, the very same label, releases an album by a Chicago-based singer named Kurt Elling called Close Your Eyes. So we've got sort of a dual origin story here. Um, and I wonder if, if we can talk about, you know, where our ears were at with respect to these two cats, you know, back in the day. Sure thing, man. Um, I remember uh, being on WFSK radio at 16 years old in Nashville. And the program director comes in to me uh, with that very CD. 
hey, man, try this on the air. You might like this. And at the time, I'm kind of this staunch, you know, 1960s, 1950s bebop avant-garde, you know, groove guy from that era. You know, Mm -hmm. I really wasn't checking for new stuff yet. I was educating myself uh, at the same time I was sharing with the listener. But I said, yeah, okay, all right. And the first thing I thought when I put the record on, I was like, wow, this is funky like Dr. Lonnie Smith funky, like Mm -hmm. Idris Muhammad funky. But where's the bass player? I only see two horns, a drummer (laughs) and a guitar player. Yeah. And it wasn't until uh, the next year of the follow up album that it all made sense to me. I actually went through the credits and wait a minute. This guy is playing a hybrid guitar doing bass and lead guitar duties and comping all at the same time. So mind blown, mind blown. And it's funny too, because on the cover of Bing, 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 it says Charlie Hunter, comma, eight string guitar. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't say what that is, (laughs) you know, because that's the thing that's so remarkable about um, what he was doing then and continues to do is like, you know, okay, fine. It's an eight string guitar, but there's, there's some real sort of custom, you know, it reminds me of like the, the great American tradition of like custom retrofitting, like muscle cars and stuff. Oh yeah. It's like, you know, tinkering in the garage style. And so what Charlie is doing is, is, I mean, it's really, um, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the only precedent that comes to mind for me is not a guitarist, but someone like Ross on Roland Kirk, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of, of the ambidextrous, Darity and the uh, the 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 one person multitasking involved. It's funny you mention him because that's one of Charlie's heroes, mm-hmm. and I think he really locked into that concept. And unfortunately, at first, he was judged in the same way. Oh, this is a gimmick. This won't last. But now, you know, some almost thirty years later, uh, this guy is still at the top of his field, inspiring others in this same vocabulary. There are now hybrid guitar players. Uh, trying to do uh, what Charlie does. The thing that sets him apart, though, the groove allure that he has, Mm -hmm. his music is as based on Blind Blake and Johnny Guitar Watson Mm. as it is in Wes Montgomery, even more so to those first two guys that I mentioned. And I think it's opened up a whole new dynamic, a whole new um, premise for what improvisational music can be and the allure that it has to people, Nate, in our generation and even younger. It's not math. It's not science. It's feel good. And when you do analyze it, it's like, damn, those are some hip covert chops that I never knew existed. Yeah, that's an important point. And I think we mentioned Charlie in our... um, our Hammond B3 episode where we were talking about Dr. Lonnie Smith while he was still with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the reason that he came up is I think because we were talking about the, the, the affinity that he has as a guitar player for that organ sound. And, and, you know, when I heard those first two blue note albums and, and like you, I guess um, ready set Shango, which was released in 96 is the one where I really dialed in. But I, I remember thinking, this doesn't sound like a guitar player. This sounds like a B3 organ combo, you know, <laughs> because he yeah. had, I mean, I, I think he was he was uh, feeding his input through a, a Leslie, 
uh, amplifier. Is that is that right? Uh, yeah, the the tube rotosphere uh, pedal, and then in the studio he would use an actual mm-hmm. Leslie sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> so it was you know it was very dialed into that tradition. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, back to your point, it was all about the feel. You know, yeah, and and yeah. like this was music that really made you. It, it didn't make you want to move. It just made you move. You know, yeah, absolutely. Was, it was an involuntary response to anybody who had a pulse. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, and you, Greg, I guess this is the full disclosure portion here. You and Charlie have become pretty tight, right? That's true. That's true. Um, he's a friend. Uh, he's been a teacher uh, informally, but. He's had a huge impact on me uh, as a musician, uh, as a as a as a listener. Um, I've gotten the chance to work with him uh, live, actually, on uh, two occasions. Of course, he was playing six string guitar, um, yeah. but to have to simulate his his thumb and forefinger was a pressure that I've never felt. <laughs> and, and 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 one of the greatest compliments I've ever gotten. Um, we were summing up uh, the album that. Um, we made with uh, my wife, who's Dara Tucker, and he was telling someone, man, you know what? That guy, Greg Bryant, he's a pretty good bass player. And I almost melted right there on the spot. It's like, <laughs> man, from you, like, my, my, my goodness. But I want to come back to something um, that you mentioned, you know, with Charlie and Kurt Elling, um, it's not as diasporate or as different as you might think. Bruce Lundvall was really a key uh, yeah. to their meeting um, in the late 90s, around 97 or 98, they had a chance to perform together. And then it leads us a couple of years after that to Charlie's final uh, Blue Note album, which was Songs from the Analog Playground, mm-hmm. which featured guest vocalists. Of course, uh, the biggest story of that day was the launch of Nora Jones. But also on that album, uh, two cuts were expertly handled by the guy we're talking about today, Kurt Elling. And we yeah. got to hear for the first time uh, a meeting of the minds and, and a meeting of, of the groove, uh, but definitely on, on Charlie's terms. Um, Kurt Elling was, was entrenched in the straight ahead mainstream jazz, but to hear him in a context, again, that was more Johnny Guitar Watson than Johnny Smith was a bit of a revelation. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people got their first taste of what, jazz vocals in the best sense of that word could be in this super groove context. Yeah. You know, that's a great prompt. Um, I think we should hear a moment of a track from songs from the analog playground. And this is actually the title track of Kurt's Blue Note debut as reimagined by Charlie Hunter and his quartet. So this is Close Your Eyes, Charlie Hunter featuring Close your eyes, rest your head on my shoulder and sleep, and I That was Close Your Eyes from Songs from the Analog Playground. Kurt Elling out front on the vocals with uh, a percussion section 
manned by uh, Steve Chopek, uh, Chris Lovejoy, and Charlie Hunter. Interestingly enough, I'm glad, Nate, you suggested that track because Charlie's relationship with percussion uh, mm-hmm. and the drums, if you've seen his Instagram, um, he's all about it. He practices that as much as he does the hybrid guitar. And he's told me that his rhythm sense has grown immeasurably uh, from practicing and and loving on the drums. So that was a great illustration, man, of, again, the basis of what he's about. Groove, groove, groove. Yeah, that's that's a little frightening to think that uh, that he has actually improved his pocket and his time feel because he has always been rock solid. And Greg, as you talk about uh, time and and groove, uh, Charlie has also not stopped forming new relationships. And mm-hmm. and one of those is with the members of Butcher Brown. Um, and, you know, two of those guys are on and in Super Blue. And really their rapport is the foundation of this whole thing. And I know you you had a chance to talk to Charlie about this and how that groove developed. Man, Butcher Brown in the lingo of the day is, quote, a problem, unquote. <laughs> Something is in the water in Richmond, Virginia. And yeah. I'm so glad that these guys and Charlie Hunter, number one, know each other. Number two, uh, share so much of the same value with relation to music because, man, when you put on this album, Super Blue, from note one, you are enraptured all throughout your body. I know I was. And with Charlie working with these guys, not only do they see someone who um, has dipped a little bit into that, you know, Richmond soil, of course, I'm speaking about Charlie's um, recorded relationship with D'Angelo, who is Mm -hmm. also Richmond, Virginia, uh, originally. But man, these guys have a certain pulse that they share, that they can agree on, and quarantine really allowed, you know, everybody to get together. This this project was a quarantine project. We talked about that. And I'd like to uh, play a little bit of our conversation about how this album came together and the impetus for, you know, really, you know, establishing some new territory uh, for Kurt Allen. You know, when he and and um, Brian, his manager, started, we started talking about the possibility of doing something like this. Um, honestly, I was in a space where I was actually thinking of just quitting music altogether and just doing a job and just trying to get some social security going because it, it's just it can be rough. You know, yeah. um, of course, I love playing music more than anything, you know, but I was deep in a thing like I'm not sure I want to do this at all anymore, you know, Um but they kind of pulled me out of that. And they were like, well, if you wanted to do this, like, who would you want to do it with? And I go, well, the Butcher Brown guys, you know, and I was like, I don't even want to play on it. I just well, I'll produce it because those guys, I love all those guys. They 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 have such a great community yeah. vibe. And as individuals, they're each very um, singular people and players as well. Each one of them has, you know, they're, they're all unicorns. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yet they all come together and make this beautiful music happen. And, and they're just so wide open to so many things. So that's initially what I wanted to do, you know, because I was thinking I was kind of going to be done with touring and whatnot, you know, and 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 uh, they really wanted me to play on it. And as much as I tried to get them to 
not <laughs> do it that way. They really wanted wanted me to, you know, um, which I'm glad that they did because yeah. what ended up happening um, because of COVID was, um, you know, we had uh, this about a year ago, really, honestly, uh-huh. we had to do the record in a way where I drove up to Richmond um, to do it with Devon and Corey at Jellostone. And, um, and so, you know, we did our little testing and all that stuff. So we were sure we were in a little bubble at that time. And the way we did it was we just, uh, you know, I just told, uh, you know, Corey and Devon and I had a little huddle, huddle and we're like, well, we're going to do this without Kurt. So let's get the tunes. Kurt kind of wants us to do the few kind of covers and then let's prepare. Let's all bring ideas, you know? So mm-hmm. we kind of all brought ideas to the table and we just made up these songs as we went along. And honestly, I think we had probably recorded two different sessions, like six days total. And we just, I don't think anything's more than the second or third take. We just would flow on something, make a bridge. And a lot of times we were just making arrangements on the fly, you know, and then we would send it to Kurt um, as an MP3 and just be like, what do you think of this, man? How about this key? How about this tempo? And he'd say, oh, okay, I don't like the key so much, but the tempo's good. Or oh, this is great, except the tempo is too slow. Can you bring it up? Um, you know, and and uh, so when, then we got all this stuff done. We sent Kurt a ton of material and he sat with it for about three months, mm-hmm. um, making up lyrics and melodies to some of the stuff. And um, and then uh, Kurt and Brian and I met in um, Champaign, Illinois, uh, this guy, Anthony Gravino, has a really nice studio there. And we spent two weeks uh, tracking Kurt's vocals and mixing. So we wanted to leave there with a master, you know, uh, or, or a record ready for mastering, rather. Um, and it's oddly, I've never done a record in this way. And it really kind of worked out because, you know, there was time to think about this thing, that thing. And, you know, for instance, there's a, there's a tune on the record called Super Blue. Yeah. And... We did it. We did two different takes of it. We did one that was like at the tempo that there, it starts at. And we did another whole take at the tempo it ends at. And then I was like, man, it'd be killer if we just could tag that thing on to the end, that super slow tempo. So we got to do stuff like that, you know, um, wow. and, uh, and it ended up being pretty, pretty cool, you know, but everything else, we, you know, I'd come up with these little guitar whatever things that are real specific to my instrument and, and these kind of grooves, I guess, for lack of a better term. Yeah. And then Corey and Devon would, would write their stuff uh, over it, you know? Okay. Okay. That's really cool, man. That's really cool. Well, brother, I think you guys are sitting on a, a masterpiece. Like I said, I'm just really keeping my ear to the street. <clears throat> and a lot of people are really getting excited, you know, not to really take over because this interview is about you, but I no, like- no curious because i live in a such a vacuum i don't know anything you know that that whatever anything is i have no idea because i'm not I, you know i just live in a in a, my own little zone you know yeah yeah no man it's like when people who don't like jazz or whatever the word is come to it that's the best kind i mean all the cats that yeah. i love that's the purpose they serve. They were not just gateways, you know, they were the real fortress, but they had yeah. this inviting people that was just, you know, come on in here, you know, put your feet up, you know, get comfy. Like that's what kind of record this is to me. It's a good oh, one. right on. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. so glad because uh, 
we really had so much fun doing it, you know, and, and it was just about just being natural, playing what felt natural. And, and, you know, the funny thing is Kurt was like, man, I don't know if I could play, if I could sing this, like, you know, am I an imposter? I'm, and uh, <laughs> all three of us, me, Corey and Devon were just pushaw, you know, we're like, really, come on, man. You're killing this, you know, it's, it's so good. And man, we did these shows in, in London recently at Ronnie Scott's and like two, two shows a night, like two one and a half hour shows a night. And if you ever felt like half-assing something, you definitely aren't going to do it behind Kurt because that guy is like an actual dynamo. Like he just goes and goes because he just throws down like every ounce. He gives every single ounce he has you know hey man well that's that's awesome to hear um you do that too so uh yeah. thanks for taking the time man it's it's sure my, man my pleasure it's cool to hear you guys talking about this thing that's been patched you know in in secret under lockdown you know um sort of a, a document of this time this sort of incubation time right and yeah. now now it's been hatched you've actually seen it live um with nate smith on drums and um and we're starting to see response from these different constituencies to this album which is cool um i feel like within the the sort of charlie hunter butcher brown realm people are psyched just to hear this bond between you know between guitar, bass, and drums. Um, I don't have a, a real feel yet for what people think out in Kurt Elling land. Um, so let's, let's like, let's dwell there for a moment. Mm -hmm. um, and we're going to hop back in our time machine, right? So <laughs> 1995, sure. close your eyes. Did you hear that record when it came out? I did. I did. Um, it was different than anything that I had heard. Um, and I had a lot of questions too. There was mm -hmm. really uh, not a clear template for what he was doing, which was exciting on one hand, but it just begged, let's listen more. What's the next thing that he's going to do? Right. You know, that album, I feel it gives you doses of everything that Kurt Elling would subsequently explore. Maybe not everything, but, but a lot, right? Because he sings songbook standards relatively straight you know that's the title track um he sets his uh vocalese lyrics to wayne shorter's dolores um you know he he digs up you know somewhat uh like semi-obscure sort of literary gems you know and and explores right. them you know there's just there's just a lot there there's you know spoken word poetry um you know it's 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 a strong dose of something, right? And I think you're right to say that it was like, w w what's what's happening here? Where's this coming from? And when we cry, they say, oh my, you'll grow out of it soon and start singing a grown up tune. You know, I, so I have to ask, like it, it, your initial response, it sounds like when you said you, have, you had questions, mm -hmm. um, can I infer from that that you were not, totally hooked right away? Like, was it kind of a, a thing that had to grow on you? Yeah. You know, to be honest, um, 
I have Kurt Elling albums that I, I really love. Some other ones that honestly, I just don't understand mm. just to be honest about it. Um, he really got me with live in Chicago from 1999 yeah. uh, yep. from the stage of the green mill, that version of night dreamer again, yes. from the Wayne shorter songbook. Uh, I was like, yeah, there's something special here. Um, this guy is not only a voracious reader, you know, writing all of those, you know, uh, beatnik, you know, opuses, but he has climbed in and really, you know, studied not just the language of bebop, but some of the, you know, individual languages of some of its leading exponents. Right. Um, I, I feel like live in Chicago was where I really locked into how special this guy was. And to be honest with you, um, personal interaction, he wouldn't remember it. But when I lived in Chicago, we met twice and actually hung for a second, once at a street renaming for the saxophonist Von Freeman. I oh, was really nice. impressed about how Kurt was so involved in the community that he had to be there for something like that. And then ironically enough, at the Green Mill in 2003, watching the Charlie Hunter trio. And what really struck me, Nate, was when Charlie, John Ellis, and Derek Phillips played an instrumental version of a tune that Kurt sang on, on Songs from the Analog Playground, Kurt didn't try to rush the stage and mm -hmm. make his eye contact and presence known. Hey guys, is this my time to sit in? No, he stayed right where he was, enjoyed the show, caught up with Charlie afterwards. And I really feel like in the hands of a less wise, more attention grabbing musician, that would have been a moment to just grab the microphone. But in essence, he was happy just being a part of the community and listening. My points yeah. for him just went way up, you know, for that. That's a really, that's an interesting story. And your, your perspective on it is, is I think really telling because um, when you speak to Kurt Elling, what you get is um, truly that sort of respect and humility for the musicians um, the musicians that he's learned from and studied and also the musicians that he, you know, considers himself lucky enough to, to, uh, to travel in their peer circle, you know? Um, and I think that for some folks that stands in contrast to the swagger and the, um, showmanship that he brings to the stage, you mm -hmm. know, um, and to a certain extent he's inhabiting, um, a kind of uh, stage presence when he's, when he's up there, you know, I'm not saying that's not a, a real part of him, but you know, it's, it's, it's not one or the other. There's, there's a real performer's instinct mm -hmm. uh, in Kurt Elling. And there's also a, a, a real sort of lifelong student vibe. I have been a, a, a big fan since I first heard close your eyes and, and not everything has clicked for me, but I'm always like, keep pushing, man. <laughs> you know, like sure. don't don't stop exploring. But I I know a few folks who are like, oh, I, no, not for me. Mm -hmm. You know, which mm -hmm. is interesting to get that kind of response. I mean, I was going to ask you, man, do you like cilantro? <laughs> it's not my thing. Really, it's not See, my thing. So that's the thing, man. I I love cilantro. I know people who you know, if there's even a little bit in some guacamole. It's like, no, can't do it. And I, I that's kind of how I feel about the strong responses 
Um, some people are like, I, I just, it's nope, can't, can't do it. And I, mm-hmm. I you know, it, that is what it is, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, but back to that point about, um, sort of the, the, the humility that really came across when I spoke with Kurt recently about this project, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and in a certain way you could, it, it's not the obvious connection, but you could place this album in a line of collaboration that includes um, his Grammy winning previous release mm-hmm. um, with Danilo Perez um, and an album that he made with Branford Marsalis. So you could say the, the obvious reason that they're connected is, okay, here are three albums with name brand collaborators. But I, I really think that in Secrets Are the Best Stories, which was his release with Danilo, um, and in um, Upward Spiral, which he made with Branford Marsalis' quartet, you hear that illuminated push-pull, you know, where, where Kurt is like, he is definitely out front and he is he is the voice, he is delivering the lyrics, but he's also like really enmeshed within the ensemble. One of the things that I really admire about him um, is that he is so studied in this music. You mentioned Branford Marsalis. Uh, you mentioned Danilo Perez. Uh, this album is a unique kind of challenge because it calls on you to basically uh, play less, even sing less. Mm-hmm. Um, bebop is a factor, but not an essential element. You know, to ride these grooves, the grooves work best when there's a little bit of air in them, when there's a little bit of space in them. And I want to play a tune from it now that kind of illustrates uh, what I'm talking about. This is, I think, the third track on the album, Manic, Panic, Epiphanic. And this vamp out is just the best thing on this record. And Kurt is confident in his voice and in his um, improvisations. But man, he's allowing the groove to work for him. You mentioned him being a member of the ensemble. This is it right here. Mm. And as we hear this tune, I think we should just go from this right into a portion of my conversation with Kurt. So here we go. Right down the river in your little canoe. Maybe you'll find your little canoe is on occasion big enough for two. sounds so loose and relaxed and at home on this album you know it doesn't feel like a a hard left turn for you it feels like dialing up elements of your sound that have previously been kind of dialed a little bit down if that makes sense that's nice of you to say i mean and for sure there have been you know uh backbeat elements and r&b elements and such like uh trace elements in in several of the records that i've made and maybe this stuff has been latent but you know i mean i have trepidation every time i go into the studio you know i've had these different collaborations with musicians of magnificent caliber and uh in every case 
I relish the chance to learn things and to be challenged and to play beyond what I think of as my current abilities and to top myself in certain ways and to make new mistakes and to be defeated by greater things. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm always, I'm always concerned, you know, I, I never want anybody who's in the studio with me to have to dumb their thing down right? or to pull back in some way to, so as to mollify whatever shortcomings I might have. So, I mean, I do a whole lot of homework for stuff. And in this case, it was, it was just more of an experiment and it was, you know, if this stuff was latent, you know, I just always want to pay respect. I just want to be respectful of the mm -hmm. time that the cats have put into the certain kind of avenues that they've been exploring. And I don't mm -hmm. want to come off like a dilettante in their world. Right. There's a, you know, a fair amount of recitation and reaching for the, the sort of beat aesthetic on this album, you know, whether it's via the Tom Waits tune mm -hmm. or the Dharma bum mm -hmm. reference. Right. Mm -hmm. um, why was that something that you went to with the sort of funk groove? Because it's so often associated with, you know, with, with a sort of a bebop uh, mm. vibe. Regarding Dharma bums, when I started, that was that was a case in which I started to write the melody and the lyric with without a preconceived notion. Mm -hmm. um, I started writing from the beginning of the song and tried not to judge it and tried to wait until the content became what it wanted to become. Yeah. And when when Dean Moriarty showed up and Sal Paradise, then I said, oh, it's about oh, it's about that. How <laughs> right. exciting. And then the Tom Waits thing, I've you know, I've I've held off for for 25 years at this point uh, from really dealing with Tom directly because it's such a such a strong spice mm -hmm. to use in cooking. It's really defines it. Usually it defines what is around. it. Yeah almost all the decisions that that I make in situations like this are incremental. You just heard me describe two ways in which two pieces on the record came to be, and neither one of them started with the forethought, I'm going to reference the beats on this record. Right, right. So it's another, uh, I think it's another example wherein I've tried to digest things that I love to such a degree that they announce themselves from my unconscious or from circumstance uh, into a situation where I can creatively juxtapose them with what's also in front of me. And for my money, creative juxtaposition, I mean, I'm not Miles Davis. I'm not Bud Powell. I'm not anybody whose work is so profoundly forward that references mostly itself mm -hmm. do you see what i mean yeah on a scale on a scale of ingenuity my thing is really a lot more putting two or more things together that haven't gone that way before and in and in the space where they meet a new combination exists and that's very satisfying to me because i get to reiterate the elements of that which i love from the past in a way that produces a new moment, yeah, and it, that and that and that gives me joy and is satisfying, and I'm, uh, I feel confident giving credit in these different directions. Uh, that suits me. Yeah. 
Well, that process you just described really just, in my mind, marks you as a an artist of our time. You know, uh, I think so many of the um, of the improvising musicians that I that I look to are enacting a similar process. You know, because there's so much history now that you know if you're smart you've absorbed you know yeah and and so um you have to put that somewhere it has to you know metabolize and and come yeah, out yeah metabolize if you've metabolized it then you don't have to be conscious of it in the same right. way right and then it just happens which is why i tell so many of my students that so much of the act of creativity is just incremental you don't have to have the answer today Mm-hmm. And you don't have to create stuff whole cloth. It's it's it, it might not even be possible given given the way creativity as I experience it and, and as I understand it works. So am I right in assuming that that you had not played a note of music in in proximity with Corey and DJ before this current tour? I had not even met DJ even to say hi. And I, Corey says that we met on the Blue Note cruise one time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I heard him playing with other cats, but we, no, we never had everything. I met them musically. I met them, you know, in this way uh, through the tracks that they sent over. Yeah. So what has it been like? Um, how many dates have, do you have now together? And and what has that been like to, to sort of deepen that bond on the band? Oh stage? man, it's, it's been, it's been so exciting. Um, we did, uh, we did some warm updates. We did a, a initial date in, in Richmond, um, and assorted some sort of a smaller date. And then we did four nights at uh, Ronnie Scott's mm. and, and we also had a couple of backup singers, um, LaDonna Young and Vula Malinga and holy moly, <laughs> I, yeah, man, I was, uh, I was a uh, more exhausted uh, the next days than I, than I have been in a long time. And maybe it's just the positive whiplash of being on stage again. Uh, But I I felt like it wasn't just me. It was like everybody in the band Mm -hmm. was playing, just edging past their, current abilities which is what you want you want everybody in the band to be right on just going as hard as they can go and that way everybody walks out of there feeling like they 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 did what they're in the world to do Mm -hmm. Corey played as hard as he could play dj brought it as hard as he could bring it charlie's banging that stuff out and i'm definitely learning stuff and and pushing the boundaries of my vocal ability every night um and it's 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 a it's a very wonderful and and deeply exhausting experience yeah (laughs) (laughs) congratulations on the album i'm glad that it is as fun as it sounds (laughs) (laughs) to (laughs) to be making this music uh because it sounds it sounds like a hell of a lot of fun um and i'm sure that'll be true in the room on all of these dates as well but uh yeah thank you again for carving out time for me and yeah yeah best of luck all right buddy all right keep it going okay come on i got a wandering feeling that it's time for moving on 
that was a great chat, Nate. And you guys got to some really cool places. And just uh, it's interesting to hear him talk about the level of exertion, you know, mm. that he's having yep. to. I always know Kurt as someone who leaves it all on the stage, yeah. you know. But again, you know, the framework of stepping away somewhat from, you know, Sarah Vaughn and Mark Murphy, you know, and Betty Carter into something like Sly Stone or Joe Tex or James mm. Brown. Yep. You don't mimic that, but that's the kind of energy and vocabulary that this music is begging for you to reference. And it's just a different headspace and kudos to him for trying something new. There are a lot of folks again in our generation that are waking up to Kurt Elling because he's doing this kind of a concept. And man, I hope he sticks with it some because I feel like that, yeah, it can open some new doors uh, mm -hmm. for longevity and some other things for him. I think it's clear that that Kurt is not, um, it, it's not as if he's pulled off the highway and and will never come back. It, it's cool that he's stretching in this way. And, and, you know, we've talked about this before, like yet another sort of unexpected and welcome byproduct of this, you know, very difficult time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, quite possibly this would never have happened um, if not for the slowdown and, That's the, right. you know, the space and the stillness, uh, mm -hmm. ironically, uh, the stillness that that, you know, our pandemic year plus gave us. Yeah, indeed, man. I think that um, it's a time to regroup. It's a time to understand what reaches people the quickest and it's a time to retool and reimagine who we are and take that essence and just try new things. And I think for both of these guys, this represents um, some new territory, you know, thinking about their shared history on Blue Note, as we talked about, they were even born in the same year. So, man, these guys, they're peers uh, of, a, of a high order. And just to see them together is, um, is gratifying. Mm -hmm. It feels good. It does. Yeah. Well, the album is obviously called Super Blue. It is out on streaming services and in physical form from Edition Records, uh, which is, I don't know if we've given enough love to Edition Records, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. This is a, a independent British label that has been documenting a lot of good stuff uh, by everyone from Chris Potter uh, to Danilo Perez, to The Bad Plus. So we want to give them some love and you should give them some love uh, and you'll get, a, you'll get a great album out of it. So before we go, uh, I, think, I think it's time, it's been a while mm -hmm. for us to toss to this I dig. Yeah. Um, I, I'm really curious to hear what you're bringing to this, uh, this episode's installment <laughs> segment. I don't want to uh, spoil uh, a very, very special episode that we've got in the works uh, for the end of the year. But suffice to say, I have been kind of going back over this year's releases and just kind of getting perspective on not only what has come out, but things that have touched me, you know, really deeply, uh, things mm -hmm. that I've gotten excited about. And I want to shout out uh, a guitarist by the name of Jakob Bro. Um, I really enjoy his latest for ECM called Uma Elmo that actually came out in February. Yeah. Um, but I've been re-listening to some things 
and man, I just can't put this album down. Um, very specifically, uh, one tune that wasn't as talked about uh, when the album was first released called Morning Song. I had a chance to uh, chat with Jakob, and uh, I was happy to learn that it's probably his favorite song on this album, too. Uh, very pastoral, of course, very ECM. Um, mm-hmm. But I feel like, again, this guy is growing in leaps and bounds um, with these new configurations. Uh, this album just has him plus uh, Ari Heinrichsen on trumpet and Jorge Rossi on drums. No bass player, no piano player, but you really don't need it for the way that they're expressing themselves and he's writing. Uh, Jakob will be at the Village Vanguard this month, and I'm going to try to catch him. I've never seen him live, but I just wanted to shout him out. Uh, Jakob Bro, Uma Elmo is the album on ECM. That is a cool endorsement, and I am also going to try to make that gig. Greg, maybe we should uh, make some plans. Let's team up. Um, that sounds good. Well, the thing that I've been digging is uh, is a book by the wonderful New Yorker critic, Kella Fasane. Kay was a colleague uh, when I first started writing for the New York Times. We overlapped for a few years. He was a pop critic, and so... Uh, we were always kind of peering over over the fence at each other. But he's he's done a pretty remarkable thing in this book. It's called Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres. Um, now, to be clear, jazz is not one of the genres on the inspection table here, which I think was a good move on his part. In, in certain ways, this book is a defense of genre. You know, we, we often hear people praised for being, you know, for for transcending genre or defying genre. Um, and uh, Kay's basic argument is that, you know, uh, genres and the, and the sort of um, clickishness that, that they can inspire, um, there's actually some, some good there, um, you know, because uh, what happens when you exclude things means that you can actually work on, on something in a really deeper way. So he, he takes a look at rock, country, hip hop, dance music, pop and R&B in this book. And it's a very fun read. It's very smart, but it, uh, but it, it, it's going by like a breeze. So the book is out on Penguin Press, major labels. Folks, uh, we really thank you for your feedback. Um, you've been letting us know about how you've been enjoying the shows on Twitter and on Instagram. We thank you. If you want to reach out to us, uh, Nate's handle on Twitter is at Nate Chenin. Uh, mine is GB underscore Watchman on both uh, platforms. Let us know how you like the show. Please share the show with your friends. Uh, we're really encouraged by some of the data that we're seeing about you guys uh, checking us out. It makes us happy. This is a labor of love. Um, you know, we started this thing over a year ago and to see what it's become uh, has really delighted my heart. And Nate, we've talked about it offline. It's just, it's just awesome to see the love. Oh, it really is. Um, and speaking of love, uh, you know, one measure of love in the public radio space is support. Uh, it's membership. Um, we would be remiss if we did not say that Jazz United is a production of WBGO Studios, which of course is um, an outgrowth of WBGO, Newark Public Radio. Members support it. Um, And so when you contribute to WBGO, you are supporting everything that we do, including this very podcast. Um, So we hope that you will 
throw some support in in financial terms uh, behind the mission at WBGO. So you can do that by going to wbgo.org slash support. Jazz United is a product of WBGO Studios. Our producer is Trevor Smith. Again, my name is Greg Bryant. He's Nate Chenin. Follow us, uh, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, our theme is United, written by uh, Newark's own Wayne Shorter, performed by Newark's own Woody Shaw. We'll be back again really soon. Take care, everybody. Take care, everybody.